Welcome to the Real Education Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Bowles, and on this show, I interview remarkable people who think way outside the box in education. To listen to more episodes, learn more about my guests, or become a patron of this ad and sponsor-free show, visit blakebowles.com slash podcast. You can also email me at yours truly at blakebowles.com. Now, on to the show. Today is Jaffe Dungana, Program Director at Where There Be Dragons. Jaffe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Blake. Excited to be here. You are an accomplished outdoor adventurer. You're an experiential educator. Tell us what you are doing right now. What keeps you busy? Oh, man, a lot of things and, you know, really exciting things in general. I work at an organization called Where There Be Dragons right now, and I work in overseeing our international programs. And what we do is work with students, primarily from the West, mostly American students, a handful of folks from from Europe, and take them to places that are at the edge of the map for them. So this is places like Nepal, Tibet, India, Latin America, places in Africa and the Middle East and Southeast Asia, places that would be difficult for them to otherwise access and to engage in, and people that would invariably have a very different outlook on on life. And so what we focus on at Dragons is creating experiences that that push students beyond their comfort zone, not just physically, but more importantly in a cultural manner, social manner, and emotional manner, and intellectually, thinking about very difficult topics that are going on in the world right now and getting a, what we like to call a global education of what's happening What does a typical Dragon's Trip look like? How long is it? How many people go? How old are they? Um, Dragon's Trips can be semester programs. We run semesters throughout the academic year, the fall and the spring, and then we have a handful of summer programs. And um, semester programs are a little over three months in length. Summer trips are four to six weeks. Uh, We find most of our students, a great majority of our students are on a gap year program, if they're mm-hmm. taking semester programs, that is, they just graduated from high school. And probably like most adolescents who are 17 or 18, don't really know what they're doing with their lives or have a sense of uncertainty in terms of you know, what's the college I want to go to. Do I want to go to college even? What do, I want to, what do I want to study? What do I want to major in? What am I excited about? I've been working so hard um, in high school to achieve what I think the world wants me to achieve. And this is their opportunity to, for a brief moment, step off the track. And so what we see as our jobs is to really help them along that path of self-discovery, self-awareness about who they are and what their place is in the world, and to ask tougher questions than they would you know, ordinarily with their mm-hmm. peer group mm-hmm. um, and with their group of, of teachers and mentors in, in a kind of more traditional school environment really exciting enterprise. We had Ethan Knight on the show who ran Carpe Diem Education for a while and is now the founder of the American Gap Association. Yeah. Um, what do you see as the, the potential for a trip, like a, a semester-long Dragon's trip, to, pro, to build this sort of self-knowledge that you're, you're talking about in terms of a gap year, of, of finding yourself, of figuring out how to chart your next course as a young person? Why can't a young person just go to Southeast Asia 
go to Central America by his or herself and build that same self-knowledge for a lot less money. Totally. And that's the question we get often, right? Is that the value of travel. We all agree that travel is something that is going to be generally something valuable, something that folks can all gain something from. But there's also power in, uh, in mentorship. We find that there's power in guidance and that there's power in, in education. And we're redefining that in a really broader way in that the traditional societies have always had folks that have essentially um, helped young people walk into their own life paths. And you know, the big difference between traveling independently and experiencing something kind of through your own eyes versus experiencing something that is a little bit more focused and a little more challenging is that you get a set of peers and you know, a set of friends, but also a set of guides and leaders and mentors that are able to hold a mirror to yourself and more importantly, push, push the students say, Hey, what we're finding is that you're really coasting through this experience. Mm -hmm. You know, for adolescents in particular, it's such a tough time. You know, I remember my own youth, it was a really tough time to kind of make sense of the world. And oftentimes what folks can be drawn to in really exciting travel experiences might be the glitzier things of, you know, romance or, first experiences with, you know, alcohol and drugs, first experiences with being cool in an international setting, um, with, you know, various forms of adventure. And certainly those are all important parts of, you know, being human and, and being alive. But we feel like those are things that people can have at any time in their lives. And mm -hmm. that for a young person who's, who's on a path and who's seeking, it can be a really valuable thing to have that form of guidance, both structured and unstructured. Like the analogy of the mirror. Yeah. Um, just having a group of people and also some seasoned adults to show you what you're doing for totally. better or for worse, to give you feedback. Totally. Um, I, I know through my own personal travels, it can be easy to feel lost and like a ship without a rudder. Even if you're in the coolest, most exotic uh, foreign location, yeah, there's something valuable about that human contact. I imagine that's, that's yeah. what we end up paying for. Is the exactly. Other people. <clears throat> exactly. And that's it's the word that comes to mind is is community, right? Is that you're entering a community of of seekers and mm -hmm. folks that are asking questions um, about yourself and asking you to re-identify um, who you are and kind of really rethink that. And we think that's really valuable. In um in a lot of kind of Himalayan traditions there's this whole concept of a, um, of a sangha. And so they talk about a sangha as a, as a community of thinkers. So there's this idea of a satsang. And satsang is when, these, when the community comes together to gather in a you know, ritualized setting to help everybody out on their own paths. And that's important to recognize, right? Is that when we go on these trips as a group experience, there is a commitment that you're going there, obviously, to gain something for yourself, but there's also a commitment that you're going in there to be a part of a team, and that's a concept that's very different when people, that people don't always associate with just travel experiences. Occasionally in the mountaineering literature, you hear about expeditions working to, you know, this collective growth. And that might come a little bit close to it, but it's, it's more than that when you travel with a group. And I think there's a lot of magic that can happen. There's a lot of, you know, frustration that can happen in that setting as well, where some people want to do their own thing. And that might go against what the group's trying to do. But for the most part, I think there's a lot of, a lot of value in these kind of you know 
carefully structured international programs like Carpe Diem. Do you think that the, the group aspect of the program sort of combats, I don't, don't want to sort of vilify individualism. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in the development of the individual, but I can imagine kids from coming from really competitive like prep schools mm-hmm. who are hyper uh, individually focused on you know, getting good grades, getting themselves into the best college. And the idea of working as part of a community might have come um, second or third on the totem pole of priorities. And I don't know, have you experienced that as a trip leader? Uh, I could see that, yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the best things about traveling to a place that is completely different than what you're used to, let's say, you know, a boarding school setting or a high school setting or a public school setting or any number of settings that, you know, teenagers would go through in America right now, So you go to a place like West Africa or Senegal or Bolivia, living in the rural highlands of the Andes, and the very fact that you're already entering a different space, a different cultural space, is going to challenge those ideas. It's going to challenge your ideas of what it's like to be an individual or what the values you hold. So for us, it's a really powerful tool, right? It's saying, we're not in America right now, and we're not in your specific niche of what your America is, which might be hanging out with you know teenagers in a scholastic setting, certain clubs and so forth. And that's really valuable and important. But what you're doing is you're essentially taking out the boundaries of those frames of references for those experiences and being put in a place where you might see other people engaging with each other in a very different way. Can you give me an example, maybe? Absolutely, yeah. So let's say, for example, <clears throat> you know, you're... Uh, you're someone that has always felt really strongly that I'm really good at I'm really good at math, mm-hmm. or I'm a runner, I'm an athlete, I'm a, I'm a really good musician. I love music. Um, you know, I love Nicki Minaj, or I'm really passionate about you know, death metal. Whatever number of things that folks are interested and passionate about, right? When you're unable to express that in a language to a host family, or you know, another teenager your age of a different culture. In Madagascar or in Indonesia, when you can't say, um, I like these things, my favorite movie is this, what do you like? When you can't connect on that level, you're forced to engage in a much more human level that has to do with a lot of you know, communication that's not always about how you would frame your own self-identity. Mm-hmm. And in your observations, you know, even though it's very difficult, obviously, to speak a language that you know nothing about, we think there's a lot of value in speaking a language metaphorically of looking at poverty, looking at conditions of power and privilege, looking at expressions of spirituality, uh, expressions of belief, at expressions of family and community that just come from being in a place where you're seeing things, you're hearing things, you're smelling things, mm-hmm. you're tasting things that feel odd that might make you feel weird too and get you sick every once in a while. Can't get those experiences on the travel channel. Exactly. And so that's the full body stimulus that we think leads to a kind of learning that speaks to you know what we like to call the head, heart, and the hands. Right? Something that is an intellectual experience. Everyone's having an intellectual experience at some point. They're asking questions about these bigger topics, philosophical topics. right? But everyone's also having an emotional experience. When you travel that happens whether or not you're in a group right? 
the emotional experience is asking questions about self-worth, you know, identity, value, um, you know, your place essentially, and kind of looking at the emotional aspect of what, it, what it's like to be human. When someone sees um, a body that's burning on the ghats in India, and they're looking at, you know, a whole crowd of people publicly witnessing this, um, it brings up a lot of questions about death and how people look at death in that country. That's a very emotional thing, right? It's not something you can rationalize too much. And similarly, hands, right? That's a very physical kind of skill when folks finally learn how to strap on a backpack or when folks know how to turn on a camp stove or when folks know how to hike up a hill or have any number of things or kind of plant seeds with their homestay family or foreign culture. That's a very specific set of things that it's difficult to learn otherwise. And, and there's, there's a lot of value in doing that in, in other countries specifically. You mentioned earlier that traditional cultures have a way of shepherding their young into adult life, the, the rite of passage. Do you use that term? Does dragons use that term? Do you see yourself as offering some sort of rite of passage or, or no? We don't use it explicitly. No. Because sometimes doing it is more important than naming it. But in the back see office, I mean? do you talk about it? <laughs> well, we believe in it. We believe okay. in concepts and archetypes that are um, that recognize a person's passage through life, right? and you know archetypes like the hero's journey is really powerful. That's something that I think subconsciously has informed a lot of Western society and mm-hmm. a lot of American society, right? But this, probably mostly through Star Wars. Could but. be, yeah, through Star Wars, <laughs> or more recently, I don't know, Game of Thrones or something yeah. like that, right? <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I think there's there's value in, in thinking of. Um, Portal experiences, right? When people can enter a portal into a different world. Now, this different world could be physical world. Literally, you step off a plane and all of a sudden you're in a new place. But in a more subtle and more interesting way, it's a different emotional world. It's a different intellectual world, right? So that's that's a pretty fascinating concept that that we like to think of as being really important. And it speaks a lot to you know a lot of people ask, "Whoa, what does where there be dragons mean?" It's such a funny name. Um, and that's actually the heart of the organization right there is that, you know, the, in ancient maps, when map makers used to draw these maps, they didn't know it was at the edge of the map. They'd draw the symbol of a dragon. And that was to symbolize the unknown. Right? So to go where there be dragons is to literally go beyond the map's edge. Fortunately, we live in a world now where, you know, geographical exploration is not really the thing right now. You know, it's it's been done. And what we're finding is that there's a lot more interesting maps metaphorically and a lot more interesting kind of edges to explore. And uh, what we focus on is the, the cultural experience of what it's like to live in a globalized world where now more than ever in history, there are more exchanges of ideas and people, and goods, right? And so that's a pretty fascinating thing to see a monk on Facebook in a monastery in Kathmandu asks, you know, raises a set of questions that, <laughs> that you, you can't otherwise do. So anyway, so that's kind of the, the edge of the map idea that we, we always play with in terms of where are we bringing people to and what are we teaching to. And just a note for listeners, that's where we ran into each other was in exactly. Open a Monastery, monastery <laughs> in, in Kathmandu. Yeah. We both leading groups there. Some good crossing. <laughs> um, so let's stay on the topic of sure. Nepal. You were mm-hmm. born in Nepal. What is the path that led you from there to here? Um, a bit of a convoluted story and that, you know, my family, uh, my dad is from Nepal. My mom is actually from the Philippines. And that's another whole another story about how different cultures can, can 
and kind of meet up and fall in love, right? But I grew up in Nepal until I was 16. Um, young kid growing up in Nepal, very much a you know average uh, young Nepali child. But something happened in Nepal in recent history that you know really shaped the the path of the country. And there was a major civil war that started around the late 90s and extended all the way through 2008, um, primarily involving the the government and the kind of the the power structures that have defined the country with a revolution that was happening around the countryside, mainly driven by a political group called the Maoists. They weren't, you know, directly associated with Chairman Mao or kind of the Chinese revolution by any means. They were just inspired by this philosophy of the people's revolution. And so they decided to take up, take up arms and stage this resistance um, against the government and against the power structures that were keeping certain castes in power and uh, ended up overthrowing the monarchy so there's no king in Nepal anymore. Throughout all of this, my parents were quite involved in a lot of international development and you know, the intellectual conversations around there, around politics. And they were definitely part of a community of folks that were really significant in the country. And you know, as we were drawing around that time frame, they felt that you know, it would be smart for us to actually move out, move out move away um, from that. We were fortunate and privileged enough to be able to leave. Not everybody was. Certainly we, at that time, we would have been you know, part of the country's you know, elite um, in terms of you know, ideas and socioeconomic background and things like that. And so um, my family moved out to California, <laughs> of all places. Not just California, but uh, Long Beach, California. Oh, man. Just downtown kind of inner city LA. Um, in fact, it's where Snoop Doggy Dog went to school. Sublime went to school there. It's very kind of big cultural shift for me from a, being a really peaceful kind of um, uh, community in Nepal to all of a sudden inner city urban uh, kind of LA. <laughs> and where did you go from there? Uh, you're an adventurer. You're a rock climber. You've done some incredible bike trips. Uh, where did the spark for the outdoors life come from? Sure. Um, I'd say probably just from my upbringing and being in Nepal. Uh -huh. I didn't even realize it at the time, but, you know, my family spent a lot of time outside. And over there, it's not really identified as the outdoors. Yeah, you right. know? It's a mode of transport. <laughs> if you want to go visit yeah. a certain place, usually it's religious sites, important kind of temples across the country that folks would visit in certain you know, days of the year and things like that, you'd have to hike for five or six or seven or 14 days. My family took a lot of those trips because they enjoyed, enjoyed that and they brought us along. So, you know, really young. I remember, I think I was nine years old when I did the full Annapurna circuit, which is one of the most famous Gosh. treks around the world. And because my parents wanted us to visit a particular temple, Muktinath, they thought it was an important religious site. Not that they were particularly religious, but it's a good destination. Um, and so I've always kind of been interested in that. But more importantly, it was when I moved to, to Long Beach, my first impression of America as a teenager was that, God, this place has no mountains. I had no idea what existed outside of the cityscape because all you can see out there is really a spread of you know, freeways. And I remember seeing overpasses and thinking, this is so urban. This is just like in the movies. You know, complex kind of interchanges. And I thought it's impossible to learn how to drive in a place like this. <laughs> this kind of chaos in many ways. 
And I had a, a, a science teacher, fortunately, who, when I was, you know, just kind of connecting with and talking to, and they, he told me about a place called Yosemite that I should visit because he thought, hey, you would love it. You know, it's not big mountains like you have in Nepal, but it's a really beautiful place. I think you'd enjoy it. Of course, it didn't take me long to be able to pull together whatever I could to be able to go to Yosemite. I bought a car and I made my first trip out there. And How old were you? I was 17. And that changed everything. You know, You're know, you done. For most people that have entered Yosemite Valley, you know there's a, there's a very powerful emotional experience when you look at the walls and, and kind of feel the space itself. And, and for me, I saw that. And I remember seeing some climbers on the face at night. And I was wandering around the campsite, seeing these lights up there. Did you have a mountaineering background at this point? No, just... not at all. In fact, not at all. Um, a lot of people um, don't recognize that uh, I'm not a Sherpa. A lot of people ask, oh, you're from Nepal and you're clearly good at this. Everyone's a Sherpa, right? You're a Sherpa, right? That's, you know, I'd like to think that's the equivalent of saying, oh, you're from America? No way. Um, are you like Paiute or, <laughs> you know? <laughs> not that simple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's one of many different, you know, ethnic groups. Yeah. Um, and my family, are, we're not Sherpas. That's not, we're not bred in the mountains. We don't live at high altitudes. Kathmandu is incidentally at an elevation that is actually quite a bit lower than Denver and Boulder. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a little over 4,000 feet. So it's not a high altitude place. It never snows in Kathmandu Valley. But yet people around the world have this image that it's filled with mountaineers. <laughs> so did you go to college? Did mm-hmm. you... Yeah. Continue your path to becoming a, a global educator. <laughs> yeah. So for me, going to LA was a, you can call it a study abroad experience that was more permanent because <laughs> we couldn't go back. <laughs> right. But I found that to be incredible. I had, a, I had a tough time adjusting. You can imagine someone who comes in. I knew how to speak English already. A lot of people ask why my English is so good. And it's because I've always learned English as a native speaker. It's just I had a thicker accent and I know how to be cool. But being in downtown L.A. and wanting to fit in will kick that right out of you. Mm-hmm. And you learn to be cool pretty fast. Um, yeah, so after, after school, I, after finishing high school, I ended up going to college um, at UCLA. Um, particularly just because that was the easy option. You know, if you're a student in California, it's relatively easy. Academics came to me pretty easily, but I found it pretty boring. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was studying in school, I always felt like the most valuable experiences I had was connecting with other people that I could engage in deeper conversations with. And almost always those deeper conversations came when you went to places like Joshua Tree and you're sitting around a campfire and you're looking at the stars up above and asking these bigger questions about life. Or when you go to Yosemite and you're kind of in a more contemplative, reflective space, you know, the magical really is what it was and i think those relationships and those experiences and the ability to be able to be in a university community and a lot of college students say that that's a really special time in their life because they can do that was really special for me and i just remember spending as much time as i could outside whether it was climbing or surfing or hiking or running or biking or anything and that was really the college experience for me a lot of th- I learned a lot of things, of course, in the class, but what stands out is really the experience of being a part of a community, having a really good circle of friends, and um, having a sense of direction in terms of what you're doing. You mentioned the high school teacher who told you about Yosemite. Were there any other individuals or organizations that played a formative part 
during your high school or college years, which seems to me that's that's really like mm-hmm. the window of opportunity where definitely yeah. outdoors people were educators, where people get interested in alternative methods of education. That's that seems to be where it happens. Um, yeah. I had a pretty different upbringing, though, in that regard, because the that same high school teacher was a part of the Sierra Club, which a lot of people, I think it's a certain niche in the outdoor industry. And he introduced me to folks in the Sierra Club in California, in particular, has a very rich tradition of uh, mountaineers in, you know, in the Sierra Nevada and Yosemite that were essentially legends of climbing who were a part of the Sierra Club. Of course, these people were generally also 60 years plus, you know, so there were these elders essentially mm-hmm. for me as a, you know, 18, 19 year old kid to be spending time with them. I was just in awe because I would see these guys and think, how can you climb that at 60 years old? <laughs> and so those guys really taught me a lot of things about, you know, traveling in the woods and being in the wilderness and, and being a mountaineer. And, and I really, you know, really admired that. And I really admired the, the professionalism behind that. So I started working in with the Sierra Club, actually, leading these trips. So I was this young guy um, leading this trips. After UCLA? For, this is throughout UCLA. Okay. Yeah, while I was in college. And so I would lead these trips for older folks, in fact, going out and backpacking trips in the Sierra Nevada, um, climbing peaks across the, across the range. And, uh, and that was really, really fun. And I just realized, wow, it's really fun to you know, be, be a guide, be a leader. And I think a lot of that leadership curriculum came from there, and that really motivated me to to pursue that and I think over the years what I realized was that um one it's it was great to engage with nature and with with the wilderness I think a lot of people can connect with that but there was something about me for for myself having obviously had this kind of childhood growing up in Nepal that felt like you know what but what about that part what about the Mm. part about you know being an American all the things I experienced about being in a foreign culture being in a place where I had to learn all sorts of things that aren't in textbooks or you don't learn in science or English or math classes. That's probably one of the reasons why I ended up studying anthropology in college. And that's, you know, the anthropology major is one of those students that oftentimes ask these kind of questions. And I was really fascinated by that. And um, after college, I decided to travel, Um, like you mentioned earlier, just independently. And this was a time when I was, um, really stubborn about a lot of things, was really stubborn about living a, a radical life path that was as minimum footprint as I could. But yet, you know, I'm still in this society where I'm driving. I had a car um, and I decided to sell the car. And I remember thinking, what's the, what's the least impact I can have and still travel? I didn't have much money. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to bicycle. I bought a bicycle. I didn't know anything about cycling. I wasn't a cyclist per se. Mm-hmm. Didn't have the gear, the know-how. And I got this bike and I just kind of did some research on how people can do long bicycle trips and decided, you know what, I'll, I'll give that a shot. So I bought a basic set of gear, a simple bike. It was a pretty cheap bike, in fact. Loaded it up and after college, I um, decided to travel for a bit. <laughs> Sounds like the understatement of the year. <laughs> um, yeah, so I started heading south to Mexico. I didn't know how to speak Spanish. Crossed the border and thought, I have to learn this language really fast, as quick as I can. In fact, if I want to have a good time, if I want to stay alive. <laughs> and yeah, I didn't have an idea in terms of what I was doing in particular. I just thought, I'll just you know, go with the flow. And 
and it took me almost two years, but I kept going and I kept finding a groove and I ended up in Patagonia um, with a set of experiences that felt really, um, I don't know, looking back right now, it was pretty transformative. So you spent two years, you started in Southern California, you ended up at the southern tip of Tierra del Fuego, yep. Argentina, and did you bike back? I did not bike back. I biked back to Buenos Aires, which is a long way. Actually. Yeah, right. I would not recommend that. That's really that far. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that then. Um, so it sounds you you chose this path because you wanted to experiment with living simply, living minimally, being sure. outdoors, being in other cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you did you end up learning? What you expected you were going to learn or take away from? No, it? it's never what you expect. You know, <laughs> it's always the unexpected things, right? So what what um, did you take away from that, or how did it change you? I don't know. I mean, to start with a few of them, surely there's so many that's going to be hard to put words to, but um, self-reliance, something. But on the other side of that is also trust, which is actually quite a bit of opposition to self-reliance. So you have to trust other people and other places to take care of you Mm -hmm. as well. So Mm -hmm. I think in terms of socialization, it was really valuable to be able to connect with a person that's totally different than you. And to actually gain that person's trust, to share that, and to enter their homes, or to you know have have that friendship, that connection, that relationship, so that was really important. Um, and I think that's something that you know continues to affect me to today. Get to I'm, I'm privileged enough to be able to work with many different kinds of people from many different kind of countries. You know, parents, students, kids from all across the United States, people from all around the world, um, rich people, poor people. You know, so it's kind of a really neat way to to build that kind of human empathy. I think that that's what I took away from it. If a lot of people have watched the film that for me spoke a lot at that time and still does is, you know, uh, motorcycle diaries story of uh, Che Guevara when he was I think 20 or 21 years old before he was the revolutionary mm-hmm. med school student in med school. And same thing for him, right? He goes off and travels and discovers all these things. That's his hero's journey. He discovers what Latin America is really like what the challenges and struggles are, um, what he's like as a traveler, um, and kind of sets up for him a foundation of ethics and values that ultimately lead him to become the person that he was. So, you know, aside from the kind of politics of it, whether or not people agree with his methods or this or that or what he was doing, you got to, you know, it's hard not to respect yeah. A young person's drive and uh-huh. that coming to life, right? It's there, There's a fire that he got because of a journey like that. Of course, mm-hmm. you can have many different kinds of journeys. It doesn't have to just be a physical journey on a motorcycle or a bicycle or whatever. But I think that the, that journey is so important for people to realize, hell yeah, I'm pissed off about this. Or I'm really excited about this, right? Any number of things. But for people to actually feel strongly about something is a really powerful thing. What were the other experiences or jobs that you had in between this epic bike trip before you started working for Dragons? Um, during the bike trip, you mean, or kind of? Or after. After. Yeah. Uh, a lot of things. I mean, I, yeah, in order to finance the trip, you know, of course, finances are a big thing. A lot of people ask, how can you, you know, afford something like that? One, there wasn't many expenses because I was living pretty cheaply. Um, Living the kind of climbing lifestyle, the dirtbag lifestyle was a very empowering thing because you ended up realizing that sleeping on the ground, you know, and outside the city limits is actually a really comfortable and liberating thing. 
So my main expense was food and experiences. Um, and whenever I needed money, I'd do a number of things. I had a guitar I was traveling with and I'd busk for music occasionally. I'm a very mediocre musician myself, but <laughs> the sheer entertainment value of <laughs> playing in a Latin American plaza in the kind of Zocalo, the city square was <laughs> enough to get enough to get by. Got, got you enough pesos. Um, I also set up a website um, and a blog that had a little bit of revenue from folks that were donating to that and contributing to to the effort. So basically, you know, what now people call crowdsourcing. It's mm-hmm. a really awesome way to actually get people who believe in something mm-hmm. to support other people. I think that's a really great method. I'm a big fan. Absolutely. And, uh, and then along the way, I, you know, was and helped out in avocado farm, picking avocados. I was working at a woodworking um, kind of place um worked at a bike shop for a little bit basically it wasn't a bicycle trip per se because it wasn't about getting from point a to point b i always thought when i ran out of money i was actually kind of excited because then i would just wander around town to see what work i could do for for cheap at one point i was um, herding alpacas in peru um, helping out some some alpaca herders for very little money but it was quite the experience to be able to sit all day in a field for many many days make sure alpacas don't stray away that's still think of that as one of the more memorable parts of the trip, if not boring. Sounds almost like the experience of Sean Aiken, who is the 50 jobs in 50 weeks. Exactly. Something uh, similar. 52 jobs in 52 weeks, something like that. Yeah. But you learn to be creative, right? And you learn to be resourceful and you learn to not kind of be stressed about money per se. And it actually can be a really liberating mm-hmm. thing. What about uh, when did you decide you wanted to become an educator? Mm-hmm. Uh, when did you want to start helping young people sort of have these sorts of formative experiences. Did you know that from early on that you wanted to work with young people? Not particularly. I know I wanted to share and I knew I wanted to be, continue to learn myself. Um, and after I came back from the cycling trip, you know, a bunch of things led to um, me heading over to Yosemite again. Of course, another place that just kind of attracted me and was like a magnet. And I got in touch with a number of folks that were working at the time at a place called the Yosemite Institute. Now they're called Nature Bridge, um, but that's you know a classic field science outdoor education outdoor education um, school that I kind of was involved in that community and ended up leading a few trips out with them. But I really connected with the idea of working with students and sharing, translating these experiences is a better way to, do, to say that to, to facilitate those experiences. And I think just kind of the work I was doing at that time was really focused on the outdoors. Mm-hmm. And one big thing that didn't feel right to me again or felt like was missing was just my identity as a person was so shaped by uh, kind of an intercultural experience, principally from Nepal to America and then to Latin America. All of a sudden you have this Mm -hmm. world that's opened up to you. Um, I just thought, how can I get into teaching that? Right. And, you know, when I looked around, there weren't many places. There still aren't many places, if anything. And one of the first things that stood out was Dragons. A good friend of mine who was working there recommended Dragons to me. And as soon as I, you know, uh, heard about them, it just felt like it was a really good connection in terms of, you know, the, the cross-cultural focus, of showing the different, different cultures that are different than our own, whatever that means. What was the first trip that you staffed for them? The very first trip was actually in Peru, um, I worked in the Andes for a whole year in Peru, and then after that in Bolivia, this summer in a semester program, and that was just incredible uh, to get to work with 
um, students that chose to go on an experience like this um, mm-hmm. and who were invested in thinking radically and thinking differently and learning differently. In fact, I have a really fond memory of one of the students who, um, you know, is it kind of an anecdote? He had come from this really well-off family, very typical traditional family, and he had spent a lot of effort convincing his parents that he needed to go on this trip. And you know, it just can be pretty convincing sometimes. And somehow he pulled it off. But the parents were extremely skeptical because they wanted their kid to go to the top university right after high school, um, take over his dad's business, which was, you know, I don't know exactly what it was, but it was a you know, pretty important business venture. He was next in line, have a long history of old money. <sighs> high pressure. High pressure. And Can't go to Peru and mess that up. <laughs> exactly. And so he goes to Peru and has a blast and learns so much. You know, it's such an amazing experience for him. And immediately after the course, he had, you know, friends on the trip that were still to this day his best friends. He decided, you know what? I'm going to go with my best friends. Uh, I'm going to stay in Peru. I'm not going to return home in December for Christmas. This will be the first Christmas I'm ever going to miss because I want to return from Peru back to the United States overland. Mm -hmm. Um, When the parents found out about that, they immediately looked at me and said, who's this instructor (laughs) that convinced you that it's a good idea? the one who biked the Americans. Exactly. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> and so the parents give me a call and are you know yelling at me and asking me all these things. But you know when I look at that that student, the things that sparked that person was that this is an incredibly creative person who was never allowed to express um, creativity uh, in the world that he was always living in. Now he's in Peru and he was a photographer particularly, and he really enjoyed photography and kind of art through that expression through that, which I think is an amazing art form. Certainly not for everybody, not for me at least. And, you know, because he was allowed space to be able to explore that, he was really motivated by that. Part of the reason he wanted to go overland was because he's like, look at all the places and people that I'm going to meet and all the stories I can tell, right? And that was his hero's journey. It wasn't the trip itself. That was just the idea that it was possible to do that. Then all of a sudden he felt like, "I I can do this on my own with two friends. He pulled it off. Parents were pissed at him. And now he's a professional photographer. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you know, you never ended up going he's to ruined. college. He's ruined. Yeah, but no, he's incredibly up. content. And, uh, and I see some of his work and it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's inspiring. And that was, that, that's probably a better fit for his life than taking over dad's business. Right? And there, there are worse problems that could happen in the world. But I think that the problem of a person not finding what their uh, true love is, is one of the more tragic things mm-hmm. out I there. I agree. Well, that sounds like a, a very impressive story. Uh, what's a more typical transformation that you see <laughs> in a, a Dragon student or students in other similar programs from the beginning to the end? What what are they taking away from these kinds of experiences that they cannot easily find at home or in school or mm. in college? Sure, that's a good question, Blake. I think um, opening up their sense of possibilities is important. So oftentimes when students go on experiences like this, they realize that there are a lot more possibilities than, than what they've always been told. Uh, they realize that their own idea of something they've been wanting to do. So for example, if someone's coming in thinking, you know what, I really enjoy yoga. That's something that you know, is accessible to me and I want to learn more about this. 
they might come with that idea, which is very noble and it's very, you know, it's, it's great in and of itself. But when you start learning about yogic traditions in the Himalayas, you realize very quickly on that it's not about postures and it's not about asanas and, you know, having a great workout or getting a good stretch or kind of settling into your breath. There's a whole world of philosophy, of ethics, of morality, of community that really speaks to so many things. And I think this for folks that have been practicing for some time and, and that take the time and effort to, to, to pursue those paths, they realize all those things. right? And so a very common experience for us is students that come with a certain idea. You know, I'd love to study yoga. I'd love to learn about Hinduism or Buddhism. Or I'd love to read about, you know, learn about kind of um, revolutionaries in Latin America just because I've seen pictures of Che Guevara. So you have this kind of starting point with a set of expectations that might be, you know, partly romantic. It might be partly kind of constructed in, in their minds. And what they discover all of a sudden is that some of that might be true, but most of it is actually very different. And that's where the opening up the world of possibilities mm-hmm. comes into play. Uh, and they realize I have a lot to learn and mm-hmm. it's a pretty exciting path. I can do this more and they can do that. They don't have to be in Nepal to do that. They don't have to be um, you know, in Guatemala to learn those things, right? All of a sudden they can come back and basically come 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 back home and find that hey home is a pretty complex place too i'd love to dwell on that for a moment because i think that's a really great point that connects travel to being a self-directed learner being a more self-knowledgeable person going to a foreign place and realizing i don't know everything that there is (laughs) to know there's a lot more out there and it's really interesting i can spend time learning and learning and learning and never get to the end. Maybe I should enjoy the process along the way. It also seems like it can be a humbling experience. Definitely. Um, just anything that removes you from this um, childhood ingrained sense of I am the center of the world um, without doing it in some sort of mean or punitive sense, like, like a, a military experience might do. <laughs> um, it seems like it can be valuable. Yeah. I think that's a lifelong enterprise, right? To recognize that we're very intricately connected with the world around us, with other people, with other ideas that shape us, and that we get to shape those ideas too and play a part in that. Um, so I think that's, yeah, you mentioned something about kind of being a self-directed learner, and that's such a valuable thing. That's, that's something that basically brings back this idea of, you know, loving to be kind of really enjoying the process of learning. And a lot of people get burnt out from that. And that's too bad because learning should be fun, should be something exciting because everybody learns in different ways, right? And I think that whenever, you've, whenever you're able to you know, kind of inspire someone else to do that, whether it is you know, in, in kind of arts, creative expressions, or even intellectual pursuits, you know, a lot of people realize that, God, I love math or I love this. But it takes a path to get there. It's not just automatic. You can't or someone to you know, love something. You know, you see plenty of stories of parents who are professional rock climbers, and they want their kid to be that, or you know, pianists, and they want their kid to be a classical pianist. And, you know, it's it's a tough balance. So I think it's a really neat thing to recognize that you know it's important to be self-directed learners, and that you can do that anywhere. It's a place. It comes from a place of inspiration. What do you do if you're a young person? You want this kind of experience, but uh, it's not accessible to you. Either you can't, your family can't spend the money to make it happen, or you don't have the the time to go away for multiple months. Um, 
I mean, that's a tough question. What's yeah. your response to it? How, how do you get a sort of more global perspective um, if you can't necessarily travel the globe? Sure. Well, I mean, to start, I think we live in a world right now where that's in our fingertips. Right? Most people, even folks that you know, come from more humble backgrounds, have an incredible wealth of access to the Internet, to the Facebooks of the world, to kind of smartphones and the Instagrams of the world that open up a window to a different, different place. And that's probably part of the reason why people are so in love with these things. Because it allows them access to their friends' lives, to each other's lives, to strangers' lives. And so to start with, I think that that can be a really great place to figure out what, what's drawing you. A lot of times I think that these things, you know, what draws you isn't always a choice. It's not always a choice why you keep researching, you know, um, traveling to Latin America, why you keep researching, you know, how to play the guitar better, or why you keep researching, you know, certain ideas of atomic theory. Right? Folks that are drawn to ideas are generally drawn because it's an intuitive process for them. And I think with a lot of the media available, people are going to be drawn to that. So to start with, I think just being curious is a really powerful thing for anyone. doesn't matter if you're on a program or not. You know, Developing a sense of curiosity, a line of questioning to be able to ask your friends things, ask adults, you know, mm-hmm. peers teachers, whoever's in your lives, you know, all of us have a pretty rich set of community and circles around us. And people are oftentimes too afraid to to ask questions. I think asking more questions. And the other thing is also asking for help is oftentimes important. Um, It's amazing what you can get by if you just ask someone, hey, I'm looking for something like this. What can you tell me about that? And you ask 10 people that question, you'll get 10 different answers. If even if one of them leads you to a certain place, that's much more valuable than never asking, right? And I think in that same vein, there's plenty of opportunities to go on low-cost to no-cost journeys uh, and experiences, the outdoor experiences, international experiences, service experiences. It can be internship, volunteer experiences. Sometimes you might get paid for something like this. Right? But in many ways, it's kind of like you're, you're steps and start crafting the direction. My guest today has been Jaffe Dujana. Jaffe, thanks for being here. This is the Real Education Podcast. This show is produced with the assistance of Zen Zenith, who also created the music. For more episodes, visit blakebowls.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.